Hi, welcome to Improv Interviews. I'm Margot Escott, a psychotherapist and improviser in Naples, Florida. And today I have a wonderful friend from across the pond who I'm speaking to for a second time because I just love this guy. His name is Nathan Keats and Nathan, hello. Hello. <laughs> and although you can't see him, he's got a lovely blanket on with lambs, which I just love lambs. So Nathan, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing since we last chatted. Okay, so yes, I'm Nathan Keats. I've uh, uh, just finished uh, a lectureship at the University of Kent, which is on intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I'm currently finishing my PhD, which is on anxiety and improv. So I've been working on this since we last spoke. Um, they're kind of linked because uh, it's the other side of, of uh, what I was doing when we last spoke. Um, so that's that's kind of what I have been doing. It's obviously uh, had a lot of COVID between as well. So that's impacted what I've been doing. I've been uh, doing less improv and more academia. Well, you certainly are a wealth of knowledge and we'll be tapping into that. Um, but back when we first spoke, you were working with people with autism and on the autism spectrum. Yes, yes, and that's still the, that's uh, still the case. Working, it's uh, my PhD is around anxiety improv with autistic people for sure, uh, uh, and that will influence what I speak about today because uh, it, it come from that perspective throughout. Well, anxiety is the number one disorder that I treat today, and. I, especially in this country, there's so much anxiety because we're almost in a civil war, if you like. Um, maybe we should ask Britain to take us back. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so tell me more about your work and what you've discovered and some of your research. Um, yeah, let's, let's start with the, the research. So um, uh, within the last, uh, what's it going to be, seven years? I think there's been a lot of work that's gone on uh, around uh, anxiety and, and improv, starting with uh, quite a lot of, uh, well, I think most is actually gonna be American influence with um, uh, Sheesley and colleagues in uh, 2016, uh, and they were doing group therapy alongside improv training. And it just seemed to happen that it was working out. So they wrote a paper saying that, and then more people actually did work that measured anxiety and actually evidence a little bit more than just the, the more clinical perspective uh, of the work. Uh, and that's actually seen that anxiety symptomology does reduce through improv uh, and various people have done that starting with Kruger and colleagues. And uh, I, when I, I think it must be my first year of my PhD, I, uh, the paper was published by uh, Dr. Peter Felsman and I thought, that's amazing. Look at this. Uh, someone's doing it with the general population. He his work was with uh, was in Detroit with uh, high school high school kids in Detroit. And apparently in Detroit, kids don't like going to school. Uh, and uh, it oh. kind of. <laughs> and I love I love Peter as well. He's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That uh, and and he found that uh, some of the the kids at that. Um, uh, attended the improv, didn't attend school, so they'd come back on, sneak on, and attend to the improv instead of uh, going to the to school. And I thought, I thought that was interesting. But on research, I think it's it's quite an issue if your your participants aren't turning up to to your research. 
but it, it's fantastic that that he found some level of uh, anxiety reduction in in that as well. It just identifies that there is a possibility of anxiety reducing. Um, and there's there's more people like even uh, there's there's a paper that's recently published, I believe, um, with uh, breast cancer patients and their anxiety symptomology reduced as well. And it's just there's a beginning to be an evidence for this uh, uh, from the research perspective. Um, um, yeah, I can keep talking and go through lots of things if you want, <laughs> but I'm not sure. I, I love to hear you speak. And I know you have a little cough today, so, you know, be sure to keep doing your beverages, but I, I love everything you're saying so far. And I think it's really interesting to a lot of our audience. So keep going, okay? Um, and okay is, there, is, is there an anxiety epidemic in the UK as well? Um, it used to be that it was three to four percent of the general population uh, had anxiety, uh, and I had to recently look it up. And the the percentages are, are <laughs> the wider range now. I think it goes up to almost twenty four percent, which is which is quite remarkable. Um, but I, I I don't know for certain if if uh, uh, if how that stat works because um, it, it, it's a wide range it's surely there's, there's something going on with it, with, with such a wide range um, uh, yeah so that, there's there's something going on but you know maybe it's because of of uh, COVID and I mean for myself to, uh, my health anxiety is massively uh, high now right. I, I, I've had none <laughs> none before COVID and now I hardly do anything which is the one reason I don't do so much improv is because I don't want to be near other people and and catch uh, COVID. It was one in 34 people had uh, COVID in the UK recently. One in 34. Oh, there's, I could easily bump into 34 people uh, if I if I actually spent time out and about with people. So uh, for sure, there's there's good reasons for it to be higher. Right, um, and I still have, I have a, a friend that just she and her daughter just got it the other day, despite being vaccinated, and they've been quite ill. So it's it's really a difficult thing, and uh, I I wear a mask when I go out in crowds, you know. But thank God we have Zoom because I did a Zoom improv with you and some friends a while back, and that's one way we can do our improv still. Yes, yeah, it was really fun. It's really interesting as well. Um, I like that. Uh, because it was bringing in uh, film acting to what I was doing. I was teaching around uh, film, film acting for, for improv and, and using the camera, using the lighting, using your environment to, to create something um, more than uh, what you could do on stage. Uh, that, was, that was really nice. Uh, um, uh, yeah. Shall I talk more about my, my own research? Yes, and I do want to ask you what instruments or um, uh, research instruments you were using when you did research. I'm starting a little research project in January with people with Parkinson's and improv, so I, I need to pick your brain on that as well. <laughs> Maybe you'll join our research team. <laughs> that would be nice. That would be nice. There's actually some really good research on uh, Parkinson's and improv that I read, but it, it, it's a while since I read it, so I can't state a lot about it but that's that's certainly interesting one um yeah there's there's lots of uh, areas of interest uh, that, that that we can look at using in improv and how we use it is important as well yes. uh, because uh for in my research i wasn't doing it as applied improv i was just doing it as as an interest of well if people went to a class would they actually gain anything 
and how are they gaining anything? Would it reduce anxiety just by going to a class that's not actually designed to do it? So uh, uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't designed to be therapy or anything. I'm not as I as I, I may or may not have said I'm not a therapist. So it's not where I come from. I come from this as a uh, previously practicing it, doing it, and now I'm uh, 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 addressing it, improving it in an academic way and as a researcher. Um, so I, I've looked at it as improvised classes that you could attend to, and by all means, some of the some of the qualitative uh, findings I've, I've got is that if you did this as applied improv, there's so many things you could actually uh, achieve with it. And, uh, we obviously know that from applied improv work that we've both encountered over the years. Um, and as for a measurement, so the, I, I measured uh, three forms of anxiety. I used a state trait anxiety inventory, which is just an over, for me, I was just using it as an overall glimpse at what what um, what people experience with anxiety. I used uh, one for social anxiety, which is Leibowitz, a social anxiety scale. And I used uh, one on uncertainty. So that was the tolerance of uncertainty. I, I keep changing the name of that. So it's probably actually called intolerance of uncertainty, uh, but because uh, uh, the, the mindset and the way I need to think about stuff we have to change it and reduce it to uncertainty for the most part and if you want to identify it a little bit more is tolerance of uncertainty um, <laughs> and that's just because we need to be careful about uh, how we talk about stuff and talk about people. Exactly and you know researchers are so important I just admire you so much Nathan because of your beautiful brilliant brain and the importance that you're giving into our art form um and scientific evidence so that's beautiful i think yeah uh, thank you thank you uh, uh i i i think of uh, uh, my brain thinks of conflict of interest i i understand that i'm not getting any financial gains from this and it's a, a massive conversation in, in research um for for uh going back to uh, autism studies uh in autism studies conflict of interest is such a massive um uh, topic and I understand myself that I have been teaching improv but I'm not getting any financial gains from teaching autistic people nor am I getting it from teaching uh, people with anxiety um, but that's just to acknowledge that little thing that's where my brain went for a moment as she said that uh, there was something else I probably should have said but <laughs> that's what came oh. um, so what I found about the measures is that I, uh, because of COVID, uh, I couldn't run uh, the the big session uh, course I wanted to and and uh, do a, a, a well-regarded method, uh, research method, which would be a random randomized control trial. I couldn't do that. Uh, so I did an online short course just as an exploratory, what's going to happen? And I did find that it's possible that uh, anxiety uh, social anxiety and uncertainty could reduce. Uh, and this was during the pandemic. So it's interesting in its own right that it, it, these sorts of things may well be able to re reduce during a pandemic uh, on uh, through an online improv uh, short course. Um, and this isn't published yet. So uh, I, I won't go into a lot of detail about it, uh, uh, but just to say that that's happened and that there could be reasons why uh, the state trait anxiety didn't actually reduce. And, yeah, that was that was mixed across the groups um, uh, um, so that's kind of the the overview of what I found with 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 that and this is 
with autistic adults, just a state population that I was actually uh, researching with. Um, uh, yes, there's probably something else I should say, but I, it's not it's not coming out of my mouth. So I'll just stop talking now. Well, that's okay because I was going to ask when you uh, worked with people with autism and were studying it. Um, did they? Did you have them sign a, a, a release acknowledging they were a human? You know, doing an experiment with a human being. Did Did you need to do that? Yeah, yeah. All, all uh, research with with people requires to have informed consent and go through ethical procedures. So my research definitely did did that. And um, what what did you find out with the autism um, population? Yeah, so autistic people uh, could could easily engage with the improv, and it could reduce uh, uh, anxiety. the The difficulty is that the, the my sample size was quite small, so we can't say for sure. But I I do feel like it does add to the literature that's out there suggesting that it is possible for anxiety to reduce. And it's really key to say that improv is not gonna solve everyone's problems. It's not gonna work for everyone, nor will it create all, all the benefits that, that you, you could imagine. It's not gonna work for everyone. It's not gonna achieve everything for everyone. Uh, uh, but that does also suggest that it's nothing to do. It doesn't seem to be about neurotype. If you're non-autistic, if you are autistic, it doesn't seem to matter necessarily. Uh, you could uh, you could get or gain uh, weird way of phrasing it. You could reduce your anxiety through through improv, whether you're autistic or not. It's something else about uh, about improv uh, other than neurotype that seems to matter, which could be um, I, I, there's stuff I could get, say, but. Uh, before it gets published, I, I should limit what I say. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But I was thinking maybe we need to start with the word anxiety and what anxiety means. You know, anxiety was a uh, psychological term with Freud, right? And uh, now it's in the common vernacular. But how would you define it? That's an interesting, awkward question. Um, <laughs> yeah, so um, so we can look at anxiety in, in various ways, and, and uh, 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 from from there's there's, uh, there's evolutionary psychology we can look at, and how evolutionary uh, there, there's an evolutionary need for us to be anxious. Uh, cognitive psychology, which seems to be quite key, and that I'll go into a little bit more. And then for me, so sociological uh, uh, ideas around anxiety is quite key as well. Um, I wanted to, to pop to something other first before that. Um, uh, yeah, so in, in, in general, there's many answers, uh, but for, I guess I should just go to my focus, uh, which is for autistic people. And my research is around that. So this is what I've been reading. This is how I, I uh, read around anxiety. So cognitively, um, uh, we should think that, um, uh, uh, so for, for autistic people, we can add a theory around predictive processing. Uh, and that means that uh, the autistic people don't, will, don't, uh, don't modulate um, the cognition. So that, that they see everything plainly as it is in reality. They don't go back to previous things, just skip through the thinking like non-autistic people would. Um, 
uh, and uh, so so we think of anxiety in this sense, and uh, it's going to be that um, uh, that anxiety is is based on other people doing this thing, and then them them themselves not doing this thing. Uh, that's that's that seems to be where anxiety can come from. This this sign it relates. It relates. It's not uh, it's not causal. It seems to theoretically relate. Um, uh, and that's important to say because it's 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 a neurology thing. It's it means that you can't change the predictive processing. It is what it is, uh, uh, which would lead us to having a, um, uh, a reactive strategies rather than a proactive strategies. And to put on top of that the fact that the sociological aspect, which is uh, from like uh, Chef 1974's labeling theory, is that uh, anxiety could well be a, a secondary deviance, you know, there's this felt stigma that uh, people can have, that can just be mental health, doesn't have to be uh, uh, being autistic at all. It's, it's, uh, there's a, a sociological theory of mental health, which is around labeling theory, um, and the secondary deviance, which is if you sustain that label, then you're gonna, it's gonna just keep it being a vicious circle of, 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 uh, of that mental health depreciation or that, identity depreciation of, 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 your, of oneself. Um, uh, these are kind of where, this is not, not kind of, this is definitely where I come from, these two cognitive and sociological uh, points of view um, around it. And there are other, other ways you can look at uh, uh, anxiety, but for, um, for, for me with, with autistic people, I don't see other ways of being exactly the most helpful. Um, uh, for example, I guess, to quickly touch on it, uh, we we did speak, and and so that the what perked your interest, I believe, was the fact that I, I find uh, uh, other uh, ways of working like behavioralism to not be uh, a good approach because fundamentally uh, it seems unethical to me. It, it's about uh, compliance. It's it's a it's it's about um, uh, 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 one person having that uh, uh, power over another, saying well. The way you you behave is wrong, whereas it, it, that doesn't seem to be um, great when we come to anxiety. Because if we acknowledge the sociological factors, that means we have to address what's outside of someone, not uh, not the way someone uh, behaves. Um, that's me quickly touching on that one. <laughs> but I want you, I'd like to ask you to say a little bit more about the unethical part of it. I know you just explained it a bit, but I like you to slowly explain it a little bit more. Okay, so uh, okay, so I'll try to give a quick tour of why uh, behavioralism is unethical uh, from my perspective. Um, it's uh, it it seeks to look at the uh, socially appropriate, which is obviously normative in how it's constructed. One body of persons says X is the ability or behavior that should uh, exist. Uh, and, and this is obviously ableist in the end if you're talking about uh, disabled people um, uh, or autistic people. Um, what tends to be uh, used is, is a term of a uh, socially valid. So the behaviorism has to be socially valid. And this is actually more so about what society or others to the client or persons put upon actually want. Um, and you can frequently see this in the literature, although they claim otherwise. Um, 
behavior generally focuses on harm one does oneself or hygiene, yet no study from within looks at harm, especially long-term harm. And you can see my paper, Keats et al. 2022, that's a commentary about this. Um, I, generally, I also have uh, some comments on this in comedy studies uh, in, in a book review that I've, I've done that looks at improv and uh, behavioralism. Um, in any case, uh, apparently behaviorism is uh, a natural science, but surely without acknowledging the person, this is another reason why we can think of it as being unethical. Furthermore, radical behaviorism says there is no mind, yet this is untrue. Think through it a little bit. The complete person is processed and acted from the mind, not brain. Uh, just think of extended cognition. Uh, we don't just think in one place, we use lots of things, including potentially, as uh, some people would suggest, beyond oneself, one's body. Another point is that in teaching on this, they say the rat knows best. Um, it's just it's been very dehumanizing. Uh, also, to be socially acceptable, the goal is apparently to be a cool person, uh, which is supposed to mean to do what you're supposed to do. Uh, and obviously, this itself is uh, against improv practices. Uh, just to bring it back to improv there quickly. Um, but behaviorism is conversion therapy. It manipulates the the person to achieve their goals of what is correct. Uh, it seeks compliance to be the, the cool person or, or of the per behavior of, of, of what is supposed to be um, used, done. Um, so changing behavior without understanding the reasons is, is another reason we can say it's unethical. So changing behavior without understanding the reasons is unethical as well is another reason. Behaviorists do seek their view on mechanisms, but based on what I've said earlier, is it successful? Um, it's possible that using behaviorism creates uh, self-incongruence, which obviously would be very detrimental to someone's mental health and well-being. And that's just from complying to become not oneself. Uh, and lastly, uh, if you if you watch uh, behavioral procedures, for example, strategic sabotage, you wouldn't really question this. Um, so hopefully that that provides you a, an overview of 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 why we can see behaviorism and unethical. Okay. Um, well, the first thing that came to my mind was authoritarian. And in our social work ethics, you know, we don't want to be authoritarian. And I was also thinking about the word gestalt and gestalt therapy, where we look at the whole person. We don't just look at, and that's what social workers are trained to do. We look at everything that could be affecting them in their environment and not pigeonhole them. But, you know, I was an English major, Nathan. So I'm, I'm really interested in the origin of words and anxiety, which I think was uh, Hippocrates. Um, but it comes from the Latin meaning to choke or strangle. To choke or strangle. Um, and I think that is really something, don't you? I mean, uh, or uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's quite something. I I had a um a lecturer back in my undergrad days who was uh working on a Welsh TV channel in the UK, S4C, uh, and he came as a guest lecturer every Monday evening, uh, and he was fantastic. Uh, and it does link to what you're saying, just tangentially. Uh, uh, and he would he would say something and go, oh yeah, and we all know the etymology etymology of that word and understand this less and less. <laughs> no one in the room was going to understand the etymology of what you just said, but it's <laughs> fascinating, so fascinating. 
that's really fun. Um, so what drew you to people with on the spectrum? What drew you to that population? Um, well, in 2007, I taught improv in the States uh, uh, in a summer camp. And uh, I was, uh, and uh, the, the camp was for autistic kids and there was other uh, diagnoses as well. Uh, and that's what drew me. I, I had that experience and thought, I have to do more of this. Um, uh, uh, yeah. Was that Camp Yes And in Indiana? No, this was just a general summer camp. It wasn't oh, an improv okay. camp. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so, they they risked they risked taking me on because uh, I I I didn't really have a have a clue about what the camp was. Didn't understand autistic people at all uh, back then. Uh, so I I emailed and saying would it make me feel much more comfortable if I got to teach improv there? <laughs> and they said they they just said yeah, and got me in. And at the end of the camp. I was called into the office by the camp director and, and they explained that that they took a risk on me. They really enjoyed what I did. They want me back and everything. It's really nice and positive. I That's couldn't go back, but it was still really nice. That's wonderful. It really is. So you really work with adults. Have you worked you were working with children at that point? Do you prefer adults or do you have a preference? Um in part the reason uh I'm I'm working with adults now is because of that research gap. Most works with children and adolescents. Right, right. Um, so I don't really have a, have a have a preference, but I suppose I suppose I do because just through my uh, training to teach and such, I I uh, was working in uh, schools and I was working in primary schools and high schools in the UK. Uh, and then I trained to teach uh, for further education, which is 16 to 18 year olds or plus as well. It's further education, so I can go in, into adult education, um, but it avoids like HE, higher education. Uh, and now I'm, I've trained to do teaching higher education, so the age group just keeps rising. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Now, how did you get into improv? Were you an actor in grade school or um, what led you to improv? Um, yeah, it was it was acting. I was uh, when I was very young, like five years old. I decided there's two careers I will have as acting or inventor. Uh, that was out of five, and it didn't <laughs> it didn't necessarily change. I I went through life uh, and it just it just filtered down to being acting, uh, and then um, I trained to do film acting for my undergraduate, and in that process, I uh, I chose to look at improv. Uh, and uh, there was a module for my second year I could have done, which was improvisation and role play. But I was on film acting. They only really took the drama students, not the, the media ones. Uh, so I said, bugger you then, I'll do it still. And I did it in independent study. And then I did my dissertation on improv as well. Uh, and it just spiraled there. So I started with uh, solo improv uh, and dance improv um uh, and, and that's where that's how i began that section of my my um career trajectory as it were and i just wanted to get on stage with nothing and succeed it's like high risk improv that's where i was at that point um uh, uh and and what i found was that it all connected to my childhood my my life before then uh in my first job i was in the stockroom 
doing solo scenes to myself anyway. I was uh, I was doing the voice of reason. I was doing the weird character just in myself, climbing ladders in the stockroom. You know, that's that's. <laughs> <laughs> I was yes and in bullies in school in in, in uh, year nine, and I was what would that be? 11, 12, 13, like. If you want me to go home and ask how much my mum costs, I will do it, yes. And I'll come back and tell you. <laughs> I didn't care. And so uh, you mentioned Boswell. Did, for your improv knowledge, I, I missed that a bit. Um, um, I, I, no, I don't know what we're uh, saying. So Because I, uh, I know I, Johnstone is very popular in England and Europe, the Johnstone method. Is that what, what you studied as well? Um, I began I began with uh, John Stone. Yeah, I was looking through Impro, obviously, as everyone does, uh, and and working through that stuff. But I uh, I went through lots and lots. Uh, there's, in essence, by now, it haven't hasn't isn't really an approach that I haven't looked at apart from non-Anglophone. I have to say, I, I I try to speak other languages, but I, I don't succeed very well. Uh, so it's all of my all of my uh, approaches on English language improv. Uh, training and I kind of have explored every everyone now. Um, in the UK, uh, there was a great uh, uh, practitioner that's unfortunately died quite a number of years ago now, uh, Chris Johnston, uh, Chris Thompson, um, and has many books out. So go and buy and read them. Um, and and his approach was was great. And um, for me, it was great because I'm in, I've always been interested in the scope of improvising. Uh, and his work was very much about cross arts improv, uh, and he had a festival which was cross arts improv um, called Shift. That's uh, an acronym. Um, I recently encountered another improv festival called Shift. It's not an acronym. I wondered if it just uh, travelled the world a little bit, um, uh, but it hadn't. Uh, so, so that he's really interesting and 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 a fascinating person. Uh, uh, it's Chris Chris Johnson. Yeah. Yeah, uh, one of the books is called House of Games, I believe. I got it over there. I should have just read it. We'll be together somewhere. Uh, yeah, the improvisation, improvisation game, the House of Games. Um, yeah, there's lots of lots of great people all around the world that we can take influence from. Great. So let's take a breath. Do you use mindfulness at all? Do you meditate at all, Nathan? Um, I think it, there's a lot of value in mindfulness personally. Um, and I, I, I know various people aren't so interested in it, um, but I, I like, uh, there's a field in psychology of positive psychology, which massively links to mindfulness. Yes, yes. Um, uh, and obviously there's a wonderful recent paper out by, um, I believe Dr. Carol Riff, and that's just looking at the history of, of positive psychology and saying about the problems in it. And I still, I still think, yeah, there's going to be lots of problems. Like we, we spoke about various problems in, in, in fields already. And there's obviously problems in positive psychology. Uh, uh, and maybe there's something that upsets people with, with mindfulness. And, um, interestingly, a published paper of mine, so I can uh, say this without any, uh, any hesitation, is that mindfulness did not uh, correlate with my survey. So improvisers uh, don't necessarily see mindfulness in it. So I question whether it's the other way around. 
people that do mindfulness that go to improv then enjoy and use the mindfulness that's inherent in improv or could be inherent in improv depending on your opinion you know but, i I'm a spoil. I simply answered you, couldn't I? I didn't. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I was gonna say I'm a spoil and affectionate. I have been studying with her granddaughter for a couple of years now online. Wonderful classes, Aretha Spoil and Sills. And there's so much mindfulness in the work of Viola Spolin, like a spacewalk, uh, feeling self with self. I mean, these are beautiful exercises that are, you know, improv exercises, but they're also really mindful. Uh, becoming mindful of our body and our space and those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Personally, mindfulness is 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 great. I I think it's very key, and I it's probably very inherent in my my personality, if we can say that. Uh, so I, I I would I would say it's 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 very useful, but I don't want to suggest it's going to be useful for everyone. No, no, no. Nothing is. Nothing is. You know, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said all generalizations are bad. So <laughs> he said a lot of other funny things for Oscar, but uh, he was delightful. So um, are you, how, ma how many hours a day, Nathan, do you spend reading? Um, at the moment, it's, it's, it's writing and I, I want to get back to the reading. Uh, just because uh, I, I'm coming towards the end of my PhD, I have to write it. Uh, and in order to write it, I've got all this great stuff, what I believe is great stuff, um, uh, but I need to make sure it's, it's, it's in-depth and uh, I have the, 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 the vast knowledge that, that I need to, to make the points I'm making. So I, I need to get back to the, the, the reading, but it's, it's predominantly it's nine to five, uh, writing, reading, whatever I need to do. Uh, that's basically what I, I need to do. Um, and I, I keep trying to publish papers and a lot of that doesn't happen within those hours either. So a lot of my life is, <laughs> is just about reading, writing and getting stuff done. I have seen lovely pictures of you um, on social media where you're at the beach. And that's such a wonderful source of refreshing the soul and the magnificence of the water and the ocean is just beautiful. Mm, and that links to mindfulness as well. Uh, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? There was, um, I don't know how uh, sound it is, but uh, GPs were uh, prescribing uh, nature walks um, uh, more and more because uh, it's, it's it's not necessary to, to choose all these other other things you can do if you want to um, uh, alleviate whatever uh, symptoms you have just go for a nice walk and uh, and I have used it last year any stressful times in life it's uh, you can walk uh, along the beach there's many beaches here I, I, I don't know if I uh, if I pointed that out but I, there's many beaches here I live in Margate so I can go for a walk and see see the sea and, and, and whatnot it's, it's, it is lovely it is lovely I just have to remind myself of where I, I live when I am stressed I go oh yeah I can just go for a nice walk and wrap up warm when it's cold which it is cold uh I was just listening to uh, a story on a radio channel here the other day about some research about just going outdoors and smelling grass 
the sensation, the, the smell, you know, our olfactory uh, senses are so great and uh, not as good as my dogs, but ours are pretty good. And so smelling grass is another way of increasing a sense of well-being, which I thought was terrific. And I'm talking about the grass on our lawn, not the other kind of grass <laughs> we used to talk about. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it sounds, sounds uh, like a great, great way of, of doing what you need. And when I started my uh, masters talking about well-being. Uh, I am well aware of of how uh, intrinsically linked I am to improv. I I, I thought in order to help uh, this rather stressful uh, stressful uh, time of doing the rather intense masters, which was a, a year long masters here, you have one year to do a lot of work. Um, so I I decided I'll do some improv. I set up an, an improv society in the university and I gathered some people we did improv every week and we even took uh took some tours i took them to to london a london festival and they did a show there uh it's it's great but a lot of what that well for my well-being i needed this this connection to to teaching improv um and it is it's weird because it's teaching improv rather than me performing improv which was really useful for my well-being um uh Yes, it's fascinating, isn't it? What we what we know we need, uh, and it's even more fascinating to say that because of the pandemic, I haven't been doing improv as I say, and I do feel like my my well being is less. It's it's way less, and I I don't know. It's difficult to get back to improv when you've got these other anxieties going on. So yeah, a loss of a loss of self self identity because I'm not doing a lot of improv. A loss of well being because of it. It makes yeah. sense. It makes sense. Yeah. Have you gone to Zoom classes at all? I mean, we've got a, we still have a plethora of classes here in the States that are on Zoom. Really? Um, oh, I know. And and I guess also, as I just say, it's more about the teaching improv seems to do me better than, than actually going to the classes. Um, so that's interesting. I just need to probably get some classes going. Again. Yeah, <laughs> get them on Zoom. I'd go if the time was not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you are so delightful. I just love, I'm, I'm so grateful that you're my colleague and friend, Nathan. I always enjoy what you're doing. And I know someday I'll be in a bookstore saying, I knew him when. Uh, <laughs> but think about teaching a class. That would be delightful. I'd like to go. Yeah, you could do that on Zoom in between all your studies. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I should really get some improv going again. Uh, yeah. There are people that want to come and do stuff uh, all around because I, I used to do it all around the UK as well. So, and I still am trying to get that to go again. So yeah, maybe, maybe I'll get it to happen. <laughs> That'd be wonderful. Well, I've enjoyed speaking with you again. I've learned so much today, as I always do from you. You're just a delightful human being. And improv does give us our joy and our inner sense of peace and happiness and the social connections there's so much of it that we miss when we're confined right now so yeah that's very true and there's papers that suggest that sort of stuff as well but i think we run out of time to go into it <laughs> okay well thank you again and i'll be talking to you at our third interview i'm sure sometime okay? <laughs> thank you very much it's been a thank delight you. okay goodbye my friend Bye bye <laughs>